0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom and I hope you enjoy this episode. What I think is, I hope, is a useful framework that there's a difference between an emergency and a crisis. In an emergency, you have to do something now. In a uh, in a crisis, you have the uh, you have the option of not doing something now, but you have to think about what's going to work for a while, not what's going to work now, and. It seems to me that that's an important consideration to think about in terms of piko'ach nefesh also, because you can imagine a difference between saying, let's let's say somebody asks the question, the question they ask is, should I go into work today because it's dangerous or should I quit my job, right? Because my work has become dangerous, right? Those are different questions, right? Should I go into work today and should I quit my job? And there's also a difference between private and communal questions The private question is, should I go into work? And the communal question is, should the work get done? Right? Those are different questions also. And I think part of the problem we've been having um, is that pikoach nefesh is a sort of blunt instrument. And it hasn't, the conversation of pikoach nefesh, to my mind, has not um, really been able to capture those differences. And... (sighs) I Right. Um, and a lot of that, Rajesh, you'll tell me if I'm not audible at some point. Um, and a lot of that is because the rhetoric we had about the Nefish Nefesh um, was developed on kind of an, an emergency um, an emergency level. Uh, we had a, a major public health crisis about which something had to be done imminently, um, in, right, or the, med- with the risk the medical system would be overwhelmed if we really knew nothing about it. And we were making decisions on the level of what do we do now? Um, and we were also you know, desperately trying to change behavior dramatically. Um, and I think that the rabbinic um, the community starting in Bergen County and then moving to um, to Boston and I was not really part of those deliberations so it's not any credit to me, handled it beautifully um, by properly prioritizing and saying we need to stop this right now because Right now, there are lives to be saved. We need to save lives. And that's the value that takes precedence in the moment, in the, the equivalent of, do I go into work today? Um, but now, I think that we um, are at least probably, I think most of it acknowledge in a crisis, that we're in a situation which is, not, um, which is not momentary. We don't know. It might last a while. It might change things uh, for a very long time, as far as we know. And so we need to uh, nuance the blunt, um, the blunt uh, instrument to Piko'a nefesh, And as opposed to making, I think, the absolute comment, which is Piko'a nefesh wipes out everything. And that means you have to analyze situations in one of two areas, right? Either you have to say that, um, or you have to say, if, either we're going to close, in order to open, we're going to have to claim that there's no risk at all. And that's not really a um, that's not really a viable um, situation at all. Um, so, what I want to do today is to start outlining a, a way in which you could talk about the halachot of acceptable risk. And I don't want in any way um, in questions. You um, know, I think, and I think we have to acknowledge that, for example, risk is different for different people. Those of us uh, like me who are living, you know, with someone in someone high risk in household, a household, are very different risk calculations and other people, and also the considerations people have. Uh, The counter considerations can also be subjectively different. Um, But but I think that we need to start having a nuanced conversation about what sorts of risks are acceptable for what purposes. And we need to develop a halachic and values language that enables us to have that conversation properly. Um, So I want to do in this year is just to Put a a framework which you know k'derekh As know, right? You know, so there'll be some extremes which I don't endorse, but one should be aware uh, exist in halachic literature, and then there'll be some um, some moderate positions which might be uh, which might have lots of variation as to how they apply um, in principle. There'll be some data points that you can try and you know build your own frames around as to how they connect together. But I hope at the end of the shir that you'll have a um, a capacity to have a more sophisticated nuanced conversation about the uh, about the, the the way the concept of acceptable risk and unacceptable risk in the framework of of Halakha. Um okay um, uh, people are welcome to put questions in the chat as we go along i'm going to try and check once in a while um, or uh, it's because I'm sharing my screen so i i'll try and uh, once in a while um, do this so I can see everybody um, but uh, it's okay if you don't have questions, but if you do have questions, please put them in the chat. And I'm also gonna at the end of the share, I'll stay as long as uh, as desirable for people to uh, to just ask questions at the end if that seems to be. you know, I'll try. I'll do an and stay as long as right, as long as you have questions. Okay, well, let's go back to the um, to the screen. So the first source is one that I think most of you know. Uh, I was talking about how you feed uh, a pregnant a pregnant aluminum kipper and basically. What you do is, right, if a pregnant woman has a, a craving that seems to be, um, you know, necessary for life in Yom Kippur, so you keep trying, you see if you can get away without, uh, without feeding her. But in the end, right, so it's not an immediate thing, oh, she wants food, so we got to do it. But if in the end it seems clear that uh, her peace of mind and therefore her health requires feeding her whatever it is, that the non-kosher food that she wants, so we do it. Why? She ain't lecha because nothing withstands pikuach nefesh except for idolatry, uh, adultery, and bloodshedding. Okay, so that seems like that's the basis for the, the raw rhetoric where we say, look, whatever we're talking about, it's not one of the, right, it's not right, It's not one of these three. So therefore, pikuach nefesh wins. Um, probably um, some of you also know that we basically passing the kiddush Hashem berabim, right? Sanctifying God's name in the public also accomplishes that. Um, but none of those situations are coming up in uh, in uh, the COVID-19 crisis. So therefore, it sounds like it's a reasonable thing to say that the only value that should be concerned is B'kohnevich. So we're going to start with that, right? That's a default setting, and we're going to work away away from it. right? So just for starters, there's a, a story about Rabbi Akiva drawn from Aesop's fables, in which I write what he's asked by uh, why he is teaching Torah in public, even though the Roman government has declared it a capital crime to teach Torah in public. And he gives the mashal from Esau's fables of the fox and the fishes, where the fox sees the fishes um, running whoop, running away and says, why are you running away? And they say, we're running away from the fisherman with a the net. And the fox says, why don't you come up on dry land? And the answer is, um, if, we can't, you know, if we can't survive in the water, um, how, what possibility do we have to survive on the land? And the nimshal is, A'fanachnu, <laughs> v'oskim right if our um right if our life is like uh is like is like this sorry that the the phrase wrong if if um if our life is this tenuous when we are learning Torah, imagine what the odds of our survival will be when we're not learning torah so that seems to suggest this is not uh not necessarilysha it's just saying that um Jews without Torah are fish out of water, we can't survive, but it's not a physical survival it's a national survival um okay that's a pretty extreme case right and i think that it would be if it turned out that torah education as a whole were impossible um, under right um without in-person school so then that would be easy but i think it's hard to make that case if you're to claim that the long-term survival of the american jewish community depends on in-person education so that's an interesting case to make um, it's a standard to me, right? And can could have to talk and see whether our standard is met, uh, whether that standard is met or now or not. If that were the absolute standard was it's the survival of the Jewish people, um, right? If you could make a, and now we're reading a Rabbi I would just say that he's not talking about whether you can survive, he's talking about what kind of life is it? So if COVID-19 made it impossible for Jews to learn Torah, that would also be a fair question. Even if it wasn't a result of persecution, even if cultural identity could survive in some way. Um, but something about Torah was just gone, um, right? That would be a narrow reading of Rabbi Akiva, that it's just like, this is where we live. And it's not considered living if you can't do that. But it's hard to read that into Rabbi Akiva because the case is pretty clear. Okay, but the Meshechachma um, says, right, that's Rabbi uh, Yismar, we're now in the uh, late 19th century. He says, there's a Gemara in Bavakama, which says that um, the Prophet Shmuel said, anybody who gives themselves over to death, or right, anybody who martyrs themselves just you know, to learn Torah, for something of Torah, in order to the halakha we discourage that. People shouldn't martyr themselves for specific elements of Torah, except for the big three. And to the point where if somebody does that, we don't quote them by name. Right? Their, right, their name is erased from the tradition, like Acher. Pretty radical thing. But then he says, right, presumably generalizing Rabikiv and others, he says, but for Torah in public, right, for mass Torah, I think is better than public Torah, you have to give your life yourself over to death and endanger yourself, okay. So that's uh right now he's not talking about the survival of the Jewish people. Um, right? It's not clear he's talking about. For the possibility of teaching Torah in public, maybe it just means that in order to teach Torah in public, there was a controversy. I think on Facebook today about um, <laughs> an Israeli an Israeli postic, um who right you know talking about whether it was allowed to an um, older debate whether you can teach Torah um, in in contagious disease wards, even though that 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 risks you right. So that I, I don't I don't think I would go that far. I think that um, that it has to be some kind of unique mass Torah learning that uh, has to make an enormous cultural contribution. I, don't, I think that the notion that anytime you get a group of, let's say 10 people willing to listen to you, therefore, let's, but they're willing to listen to you, they're only willing to listen to you if you sit down in the middle of a of a, of a busy highway, uh, right? That's ridiculous. Obviously you don't have to do that. Um, and I don't know that you have to, um, that you have to uh, go into a contagious disease ward unvaccinated to teach Torah. On the other hand, I can see somebody making an argument. But let's suppose there are people with long-term contagious diseases, like right, leper colonies, and there's no, right, and they have no one there who teaches them Torah. Um, right? So how do we look upon people who do that? I think it'd be very hard to say it's obligatory. Um, if we treat it as heroic? Right? That's really an interesting question: whether you're allowed to, whether you're allowed to, maybe whether we valorize people who um, who risk their lives in order for some group of people. To learn Torah in a way they would otherwise not be able to learn Torah, because they live in a, in a space where it's too risky. Um, people who snuck into the Soviet Union uh, in order to in, right, to bring books or to teach during the um, right, in the Soviet era. Uh, right, so those are those are all. Right, um, those, right, so it's a shatashmad. You know, so there's a, maybe there's a kiddush Hashem issue for the people who are there already, but for people who snuck in from outside to do it, right, so that's an interesting question. About how we do that, but there again, I think it's a, a you could try and make that claim, um, right? It's an, you can see that the boundaries are moving because you can try and make that claim because it's harder to think of a better example of mass salutatura than schools. On the other hand, virtual school is a possibility, um, right? So I think that it, it's still a push, but it you can you can see where the conversation might move if it were framed more extremely, and if we're thinking in the very long term. Okay. There's another Gemara which seems to um, offer a much, uh, you know, a much. I guess a reading of Rabbi Akiva, which is much, which doesn't, isn't tight to the specific circumstances of his case, uh, or a parallel case. Rabbi Marav says that we remember one person for good, uh, Rabbi bin ben Baba by name, because if it were not for him, Dine knasta would have been forgotten in Israel. The Gemara says forgotten. We could always learn them, but without formal smicha, not the kind of smicha we have nowadays, but formal. Smicha, which is you know, which is actually laying on a hands from Moshe Rabbeinu down to our time, you can't rule in certain kinds of halachic cases. And if it had not been for Yudah Ben preserving preserving smicha uh, during during the early Tannaitic period, then uh, then um, smicha would have been forgotten. Sigmar says, but would it have? He says no, but they wouldn't have. They wouldn't... No one would have uh, there would have been no no um, in eretz. right? There wouldn't have any and he spoke to him so there couldn't have any judges judging those cases. Like nowadays, right? So there's always a difficult um sugi to read that if they hadn't been for Udn Baba they they would have been in Vutal, but they are in Vutal now. And it's not clear that we ended Smicha because of any kind of persecution. We might have ended Smicha just because the center of the rabbinic community moved from uh, from Israel to Hutzler, right, and you can't have, you can't do that kind of smicha in Kuzlares, right, and so smicha, and we came up with all sorts of workarounds to enable to ask for communities to work, and so so smicha became less important, and we live without the nigunah. So, nonetheless, Rudim Baba is remembered for is remembered for good because he sacrificed his life. It's a very dramatic story. He Ends up with as many arrows in him, at, right? That he is like a colander, right? Um, he's pierced to some like a sieve. Um, so it sounds like it's legitimate to. Um, to sacrifice your life, not just for all of Torah, um, but for part of Torah. Right, we can live without it, but Ridd thought it was thought that was something, so you have to figure out how that is. Um the Rav, according to Riskin, has a uh, fascinating uh gave a fascinating drash of the where he said the Rivid was actually giving himself eternal life because he was giving empowering his students in the halaf system, so there's a subjective element as well. What I want to get out of this is that um You can't say bikoach nefesh is the only value. Some kind of qualitatively or quantitatively extraordinarily important um, Talmud Torah has value against bikoach nefesh. But the parameters of that need um, need enormous work. And um, and I don't you know I'm just giving you primary sources, and you'll have to figure out for yourselves uh, how that plays out. Okay, that's um, one alaki count. I'll stop now. if anybody has questions about that um, right now, before we go on. That's the end of my discussion of Psalm Torah. Okay, so we'll go on to uh, to the second concept. And the second concept uh, is, um, you now it's called Shomir P'ta'im Hashem, right? It's a, a Pesach, I think, in, initially, if I remember correctly, maybe I'm wrong. Um, God God is a protector of fools, which um, seems to allow one to do things that without this concept, we would view as too risky to engage in. Um, so for the first case is not one that uh, you know, bothers us very much. You can eat grapes and figs at night, which, for whatever reason they thought was, uh, was unsafe. Okay. So that might be one of those things, right? There's a whole category of things in the Talmud which seems to relate to dark forces. And um, we nowadays are very fond of the position that says that those things only affect you if you believe in them, if you allow them to affect you. Okay, right? So it's not really dangerous, um, right? We say, right even though we call it Shomrei Hashem, right? Really, it's you know, is God protects the naive in a sense, but we think that's really the other way around. It's that uh, God harms the paranoid, I guess. Um, so right, so okay, right? So that's not really a great example for risk taking because we might say the risk is not real. Uh, Shmuel says the same thing about blood about bloodletting on um, on Fridays. Uh, we add to category "cave in the dashu be'rabim" since lots of people do this bloodletting on Fridays, so we say "shar mitim Hashem." So this is a bothersome thing for us because we think nowadays that bloodletting is generally not a healthy thing at all. And um, and is our standard of risk really whatever people do? Maybe this is only talking about uh, standards of medical risk, where you're balancing health considerations as opposed to external issues. That's also right. It's also not a great precedent for many things. Rav um, Papa. Talks about um, circumcising uh, male babies on cloudy days, uh, right? So now he says lots of people do that nowadays. So the shemim play machem. So that seems like a, a you know a um, a combination of the first two. On the one hand, it's something where we don't really see what the right, Why should cloudy days affect uh, circumcision? People try to have tried to give naturalistic explanations, but they don't. You know, they're not terribly convincing to modern ears. And this idea that lots of people do it anyway. Um, the, what it advances, though, and I think is important, is to bring us up against the fact of circumcision. So I think that um, all of us understand that um, right, halacha says you can't circumcise a child in a um, from a hemophiliac family. Uh, and the way halacha said it is that if the previous children died, then right child or children, as a machloket. When right, it takes one or two as a result of circumcision, you can't circumcise the next child. But if you think of it on a big data framework, right, so that means that everybody throughout history knew that there was there were a certain percentage of babies who were hemophiliacs. And if Bikoch Nefesh were an absolute, so then circumcision should simply be banned. And circumcision was not banned, what we said is that if you have reason to consider in this case, the possibility of hemophilia, then you're not allowed to, then you're not allowed to circumcise. So plainly, right, the logic given of this particular case, circumcision uh, circumcision during, uh, right on a cloudy day, that logic is, um, is about Shomer, shomer Pseim Hashem. Uh, thank you, not mishlevatilim. thank you, Deborah. Um, the, um, the, um, the, right, the underlying principle is that there's a mitzvah, not part of the big three, uh, right, circumcision, that nonetheless has some kind of weight against some kind of piko'ach nefesh. And now we have to start thinking this is a nuanced notion, right? Because you can't, right, if you think that this child is specifically endangered, then you're not allowed to circumcise him. But we engaged in circumcision knowing that there was some kind of overall risk, even ine- inevitability. Of the right, so that, that requires consideration. That plays an even bigger role in the next Sugya, uh, which is talking about um, whether women for, um, for whom childbirth is dangerous are allowed to um, engage in sexual activities that might make them pregnant. Um, and the position of the Chachamim, how we paskin is really not my issue, right? This creates into all sorts of contemporary birth control shylas, and that's not my issue. But the position of the Chachamim, which we may or may not paskin like. Is that we certainly allow such women to engage in intimacy, and perhaps we even forbid them to engage in certain kinds of, of birth control, even if those are the only kinds of effective birth control available. So at least the Chachamim held that right that and right that this was the case. And even if the Chachamim don't hold that this is the case, again we have to ask the same question as we do about circumcision, childbirth was about as dangerous a thing as existed in the pre-modern world. The mortality rate uh, for women in childbirth was enormous. So why would we ever allow women to um, to become pregnant and we, without getting tangled in the specific question of whether women are mechiavot and puravu, and maybe the reason that women can't be mechiavot and puravu or I couldn't have been obligated is because the, the risk was so high. But as a culture, we encourage pregnancy, even though pregnancy is statistically uh, you know, a very significant threat to life. So it has to be, right, that there are, right, so we engaged in circumcision, even though we knew the circumcision, Rahman al led to the deaths of some babies. And we engaged in procreation, even though we knew that Rahman al-Islan's uh, procreation led to the death of some women. And so we talk about, uh, you know, what sorts of risks are acceptable and what sorts are not. We have to recognize that we have in the past built our culture, both, um, right, you can say the culture is, that pregnancy and childbirth is certainly essential for a culture to continue. Um, circumcision is a little bit of a harder argument. And on both of those, we were willing to assume statistical risks. And yet, um, in each of these, um, right, according to Mayer in the case of Brayden disagrees with right, the Chachamim in our case, um, and according to everyone in the case of circumcision, when there is a, a right, when there's a specific um, a specific risk we ban it, right? So we have to make, have some kind of distinction between large-scale big data pico Hnefesh, and pico Hnefesh. in the immediate case. It could just be what the odds are, um, but it could be something else. So that also has to be um, considered. There seems to be some kind of fundamental cultural frameworks which allow us to take statistical risks, even though that won't necessarily govern the way in which we tell uh, individuals to behave. We tell high-risk people to behave in one way and we tell low-risk people to behave in another way even though the risk never goes to zero. Um, okay, next concept um, is from the Gemara B'av This is often assimilated to Shoram B'tayim Hashem, but it's probably not the same thing. This is the Gemara B'av which talks about uh, a pasuk, which is talking about paying workers. In the context of that pasuk, you have to pay the worker because it says they love, who no say at um idiomatic phrase, which is understood by the Gemara to mean that people risk their lives to work. Why does this person you know, go up a, in a high place and hang on to a tree? Right? What, when people walk on high ramps and climb trees for work is not our business. right? They, people have all sorts of complicated ways of trying to figure out ways in which you can do both of them. But the point is in Molamita, right? why did this employee risk his life? Didn't he do it for his salary? So withholding his salary is sort of like killing them because it makes their, their risk worthless. And that is generalized to a principle that you can accept employment that involves a non-trivial element of danger. Now, how is how can that be? Um, right, it's because is the only value. How can we allow people to accept employment that involves risk? And what is that, right, and what degree of risk? And does it matter what kind of employment? Then is employment the only exception? Right, we have a verse. The verse says, no, say it, not show, which is talking about work. Um, but maybe that's generalizable to other kinds of categories. We have to figure that out. Certainly for work, there uh, there is an exception. And then we also have to figure out, ask the question, is that, so because the worker does this voluntarily, does, right, what happens when, the, right, does that mean that you can impose that kind of work on people? Does it matter of the condition circumstance? That we will look at a little bit in the course of this year. Um, okay, one other principle that um, I introduced and I think has value is that uh, we read in last week's parsha, uh, Rabbi Chessis said that US said Chessis gave a share about this uh, this year, right, that there's a, a verse requiring you to build railings, which is also framed as a negative obligation, that you cannot put blood or blood guilt in your house. And the Gemara Ketuba quotes Rabbi Natana saying, how do we know that people can't keep vicious dogs in their houses? Or they're not allowed to leave rickety letters. Um, it says, does that mean you can't maintain it or you can't have it erected lest people walk on it? That's also a, a fair, uh, fair question. But it means that you're not allowed to, uh, to sustain dangerous conditions in your house. So there are two concerns about this. One is, why do I need a prohibition against maintaining dangerous conditions in the house? Shouldn't that already be included in uh, some kind of general principle? of We don't think that that's derived from here. Uh, and secondly, as, as I quoted Ravar Luchinstein said, um, you know, dogs, vicious dogs, you might say, okay, they're dangerous. But if you read the Gemara and, and Chumash, it sounds like that oxen were really very dangerous also, right? We have whole partials in the Torah and all, right, and in, um, right in the Gemara but what happens if an ox kills somebody. So why are we allowed to keep oxen? So the answer has to be that Bekilach Nefesh isn't the only value. Luchinstein framed this, and this has had deep influence on me as people have a right to a normal life a normal life in biblical times and in Semitic times involve being able to have oxen. So we allow a certain degree of social risk and we allow you not only to have a risk to yourself, but we even allow you to have risk to others, right? Cause we don't allow you to keep a vicious dog, but we allow you, um, but we allow you to um, keep an ox. And now once the ox proves to be a specifically vicious ox, right? It's a, a so then we might not let you keep it anymore. Um, right, or if it's a right, or if it actually kills somebody, don't rate right, We can't, a human being, we can't allow you to keep it anymore. But we know that a certain percentage of oxen um, are dangerous, and nonetheless, we don't ban, we, we don't know in advance which oxen are dangerous and which aren't. Right, we know that within any given, within the whole class of oxen, there will be dangerous oxen, and we don't know about until they kill somebody. And we still don't ban the um, the maintenance of oxen. So there again, there must be some kind of. Um, value balance against because of are listening talks about normal life. Normal life is a very very challenging notion in um, in our time right in the context of a pandemic um, because what normal life is obviously shifts right here you know, if right, if all the oxen in a in a society all of a sudden you know if the rate of mad cow disease I don't know if mad cow disease makes makes oxen um, attack people but if there was some kind of disease that made oxen attack people at a very high percentage so then probably normal life in that culture would shift and Oxen would no longer be part of it, right? The risk from oxygen is low enough that we think that we deem it reasonable to say that that's the risk that should be acceptable in society. So the concept that there is something called normal life, which uh, which makes risk acceptable, that's a uh, that's a value. But how you frame that is an open question. Okay. Um, let's talk about let's talk about some specific examples. We're going to get more concrete now. Now we have. I think all of the primary Talmudic sources uh, are out. We have the sources about Talmud Torah being a counter action. We have the concept of Sharma Taim Hashem, that uh, which um, we're not quite right. Might mean that there's right, Might mean that certain dangers just because they're public or just because it's Dashu BeRabim they become socially acceptable. That's enough. Or it could be that it, we need there to be some kind of positive value there. I mean, it could be that we need to think that the risk is only in your mind. Right. So we don't really know where Sharm Taim Hashem fits in. We have the exception for we have the exceptions that we recognize are built in principle for circumcision and childbirth we have um, the concrete exception for uh, for employment and then we have the um, the notion the is also counterbalanced um, by some kind of concept of a normal life okay how does this play out so there's a um, a response from or the 18th century the Oda about hunting, right? This is very famous now because of his moral implications about hunting in Sar Baal um, But in the original context, the, the question was asked well, you have this person who you know, became a landed, uh, a landed baron, um, right? And he has villages and he has forests, and he wants to know if he's allowed to go with, uh, right? We have a good Western language, the Kanes Reifah, with a fire stick. Let's do the is he allowed to go hunt? And then he says, Somebody who is poor and does this in, um, in, for his living. The Torah permits this. Just like everybody, who goes, everybody who goes to sea to make money is taking an enormous risk. But the Torah doesn't ban people from going to sea for money. And Vera. Whatever people need for their living and their support, there's no choice. We can't construct a society, an economic society, which doesn't involve risk. And we should realize that you know, that most that we, we now have many many jobs that have um, are much lower risk than any job basically in the pre-modern world. Right. So he generally says right that it's not just hunting, right? it's not just um, climbing high trees. In general you're allowed to take risks for employment that he doesn't set boundaries on that risk. Right? And he quotes the Gemara. He says, but if you're doing it, but somebody whose purpose in hunting is not to have food, right, not to survive, but he's going because of his own desires. right? He's going on, um, right, on a safari hunting mission. He puts himself in danger. Okay, so he has a pasuk for, uh, he has a pasuk for, um, of the selves, the Rambam quotes that pasuk at great length. Um, and he says, but if you're doing it for work, the Rebbe takes the Gemara, Elab, and say it, and show, and seems to say that we have no boundaries on what risk you can accept for, um, what risk you can accept for employment. Um, right, the only issue is intent. If your intent in going hunting is to make a living, it's right, it's perfectly mutter, but if your intent is to have fun, so then it's a, pro- a violation of the co right, so I framed this as, you can hunt for a living despite the danger, but not recreational, okay, so, right, so we have to figure out, right, you know, that's a very strong claim, right, do we really want to bound that or not, are there no restrictions as to what you can do, uh, what you can do for employment, is it only employment, or is it for business opportunities, sounds like it's business opportunities, because it's not just sailors, it's entrepreneurs who go on, right, who go on boats, Right, so, how far are we going to take this? What are the boundaries of, da- right, of dangers you can accept for employment? And then, how does that play out for employers? Okay, um, so now we're in the 20th century. Uh, Rabbi Zio, the Sari Rav Rashi of Israel, is in a conversation with Rabbi, who I don't know, it's Rabbi Memnun. It's not Rabbi Nisim, his first name was Yitzchok. Um, and in that conversation, right, they're, they're in, engaged in a conversation about uh, whether one can and get, one can have an abortion um, um, for health reasons, even though the abortion itself is dangerous. They're talking about the possibility of balancing risks. Um, so he says, um, in part of your explain the data, what you right? So you dealt with some contrary evidence by saying, So the chicane is, right? So you can engage in something dangerous in order to remove a greater danger, that's pretty easy, right? So you can engage in a potentially dangerous abortion if child, right? If childbirth would be more dangerous than the abortion, that's fine. Then he says, but his other formulation is really quite radical. <inaudible> any action which is done for a purpose, any purpose? Well, why isn't recreation a purpose? Right? We tend to, right? You know, we we would, um, right? In modernity, right, the distinction between Purpose and recreation has been uh, significantly lighted I think uh, Rastav has a wonderful David <laughs> has a wonderful sefer whose name I'm forgetting for the moment. I have it downstairs on the halachot of leisure. Um, but we nowadays often re, you know frame what in the past would have been called leisure as a mental health break. So now it's you know, now it's refuel. So right, so it becomes a worthwhile purpose. I don't think that's illegitimate. So that's a very radical claim, right? Kol pula shana Any any action done for a purpose. Right, and, he said, and he quoted this, right? How did this Rabbi Reishbem get it? He got us from, they to say it, show. he got it by generalizing the exception for employment to all purposes. Okay. Uh, now, uh, that's the end of Rabbi Reishbem Nun and uh, Rabbi not I, I can't give Rabbi Reishbem too much authority because I don't know who he is, but here's Rabbi Ziel's response, which I think is fascinating. He says, dati." You can't prove your point, your your general point about any purpose from the case of employment. Why? Because even the employment cases are not necessarily generalizable because what is talking about there? The specific modes of employment that the Gemara is talking about, when the Gemara says you stand on high ramps and you, you hang yourself from trees, those are, those are conditions of life. Well, conditions of what life? Not, not um, conditions of your life, other than the money, right? If it's the money, then it doesn't matter what job it is. I mean, these are things which are societally essential, right? To use a, right, a category, not necessarily the same meaning as what we call essential workers, uh, but he has a, a roughly parallel category. Lokane. Because otherwise we wouldn't pick these fruits. And how can you have a society where the fruits aren't picked? And you can't build houses unless there are people willing to climb right willing to climb on unfinished roofs that don't yet have markas. Um, right? So he says, right, that the exception for dangerous employment to him cannot be. Generalized even to all employment, let alone to the really broad claim that uh, Rabbi Reishit Nun said it. But it can be generalized to say that you're allowed to accept risk for essential work. They have to figure out what his boundaries what his boundaries are of that. Right. That's a um, right. That's a, right. That's a very uh, that's a very broad claim. Okay. But uh, Rabbi Zil is certainly a um, you know certainly somebody who I think has very significant authority. Right, there's some debate in the uh, in the YU world. Rebazil is not really in right now. And in some places, in the Sardic world, Brazil is still the great guttural of the 20th century. I think Rebazil has to be taken very seriously. Okay, but you don't only have to do it in Rebazil, right? Because here we have the Tzitz Eliezer and Ashkenazi, uh, also, uh, right, later in the 20th century in Rebazil. And he um, quotes a Tziv of the shame Aryeh, right, with approval, Um he tells you the shame Ari, the shame Arie was right, um, a great, a greater than the previous generation, and here's what the shame Arie said. And again, the the Zishleizer appears to me to endorse this. V'da, uh, sakana, even things that are dangerous, nonetheless, olam, things that are part of the custom of the world, and they are they cannot be done without. There's no reason to be concerned about them. Why? Because there are four people who have to make a birka gomel, he says. And two of them are people who travel through deserts and people who travel through seas. So we, it would be a bracha of If you made a birka gomel on these things without them actually being dangerous but we don't ban you from taking caravans or going by sea. So obviously, he says, there are cases, right? The things that are taken as normal risks by a society, obviously, even though they are genuine risks, we allow you to make a bracha for surviving them, you're still allowed to do that. But certainly for those things which are necessities for the world, and again, you can imagine a world where nobody travels, but... They're necessary for what he considered, you know, like civilization, I guess. Any circle, there's no prohibition at all. Anything which is necessary, and he gives a fascinating example of necessity like going to war. That's just one of the things that is essential for the world. There have to be armies. So, being in an army in wartime is certainly dangerous. Shariat is still permitted. Even if it's a war if that there's no obligation to fight. Right? So that's a very, um, right, that's a very, um, right, a very radical claim, right, that as to how, how far you can go. Um, is it real as broad as Rabbi Reish Memnun? I don't know. Maybe he is Rabbi Reish Memnun. I don't think so. Shaymari doesn't sound right. I don't know. Um but it's a very broad. It's a very broad claim, and the Sitz endorses it. So so you can say the formulation is, is similar to Rav Rebazil says and Sitz says not just for turek. not for subjective purpose, but it's still pretty, it's still pretty strong. And the says They're customary. And they are for human needs. I don't think this is for individual human needs. And the way of the world is not to be concerned about this. Um, right? In these cases, to worry about the the dangers implicit in these things. Um, right? Why did you do this? And here we have language I think that has never shown up in prior trivots. For their own progress, and and for human progress, All right? So the is, according to Shemariah, says, you know what? We allow people to take the risks that are deemed socially acceptable for their own advancement and for human advancement. Okay, that's a very broad, uh, that's a very broad claim, right? Uh, right. it Quotes again, the um, right, the question about whether you can go to Israel when it's dangerous, and he says, you can go. Right. That is that. When the roads to Israel, right, when the roads, the classical halacha was in time the beat, that you could, you go, you couldn't go to Israel when there was a specific danger above the ordinary danger. But in an ordin, but even though the roads were ordinarily dangerous, this was seen as a socially acceptable risk, and therefore, not only could you go to Israel, you could compel your spouse to go to Israel, um, or divorce you, right? Both husbands, both husbands and wives, you know, and you would be, right? You would be the economic, right, You would suffer economically in a divorce settlement. Uh, because you are the one behaving badly. If you refuse to go to Israel, even the going to Israel was dangerous. Uh, All right, they said the boundary is simply, right, what's the standard? And what is measurement for whether you can do this or not is simply what is the custom, not even, when right, he says the custom, not only, not even of ordinary tourists. What's the standard, thinks, the standard for merchants? As long as merchants see this as a perfectly ordinary time to go to Israel, so then you can compel your spouse to go and all the out with you because if we allow merchants to do it, then we allow anyone to do it. And your objection is not well-founded, even though you can get up and shout, martem, Ola naf shotechem, all you want. Um, right? So that also is a, um, right, is a, seems like a very strong statement. And he has these fascinating claims about, uh, right? Uh, right, for their own progress and for human progress. Um, okay. Um, okay, so now I want to move into um, some 20th century post um, right, so, and, and we'll try to address uh, Deborah's question as well. What happens if there is no social precedent? What happens if, if unprecedented social circumstances arise? So to what extent do we have values that shape that, or we just say, let it shake out society, societally? So um, Rabbi Zilberstein, uh, Rabbi Yashif's son-in-law, As a whole series of true that express what I think is a defensible position, but probably not the position I want to adopt uh, about what sorts of risks are acceptable. And here's the way he frames it, right? He's dealing with a question there about whether, uh, this is the first question, we'll see many questions. The question is whether a woman is entitled to refuse a cesarean section, even though that has a non-negligible risk, it, 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 there's a risk in childbirth to her it's not you know, a serious risk but it but it would certainly be right from a medical perspective you would say this is right that we, uh, cesarean is indicated because she wants her husband to have the midst of opinion her right now I'm not going to engage in the pastoral conversation about that, that, whether that's really what's happening or not that's the, the the case he's dealing with and he starts by quoting note and he says the following the simple the he takes the radical understanding that Rabbi nun Nuntuk, it seems to me in a in a very strong sense that where he says that's the same kind of language as purpose for a purpose you can accept some level of danger but just for relaxation that's forbidden even when the risk is very small, and he tells you right, but it's really hard to figure out what the boundaries are, um, and I think that, that's true both ways. So might, certainly, you know the risk of what considers a small risk and what's a large risk, and also I think what's considered a toelit and what's considered of teul. Right, so you have two criteria: is the is the purpose worthwhile? Is right, Is the danger significant. And it seems to me that the most likely explanation is you have a sliding scale that you can accept slightly greater danger for slightly more worthwhile purposes. Now, does that scale go, you know, is it a purely scale all the way up and say that you can accept much greater? I think that we have objective markers. For example, you know, like you can't engage, put yourself in immediate danger because of right, for anything but the big three. So we have to figure out, right. I think there are objective markers. But within those objective markers, there's room for a sliding scale. Um, so in this case, right, she's engaging in a kiddush Hashem. He thinks because right, she thinks right because she's taking a risk in order to show, and she's going to show the, the 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 medical staff how much she cares about mitzvot. And he says, so that would be worthwhile. Except, and practically, he says, in the end, but if it if it goes badly, the kiddush Hashem will be much worse than the kiddush Hashem of doing the mitzvah, that so don't do it. I think that's a very reasonable thing. Okay, but here we're talking about high-level purposes, kiddush Hashem, uh, right, mitzvot, uh, kiddush Hashem, big mitzvah, right, then he has what seems like a much more trivial question. Are you allowed to juggle knives at a wedding? Juggling knives seems like a dangerous activity. So are you allowed to juggle knives at a wedding? And his answer is, well, if there were no other way to right, to make a Chatan and Kala happy, then you would be allowed to juggle knives but he says, you know what, I think there are less dangerous ways and the person in will be just as happy, so don't do it. But it seems to him, right, he says, right, so if that's the case, since you can make them happy other ways, so then the Sakana doesn't accomplish anything necessary, the second, right, even though it's engaged in for a purpose, but it's sort of trivializing the purpose, because you're, right, you're using the purpose as an excuse to do the action, Right? You're not doing the action for the purpose. Right? The reason you're juggling knives and not blunt instruments is because you want, you want to juggle knives. And so we're not going to let you do that. No, you can't put yourself in danger just because you happen to be entertaining the chassan and kala. The only way You can only put yourself in danger in order to entertain the chassan and kawah. And you know, he's not really willing to entertain the argument. Right? But, you know, if you can imagine the person is going to come back tomorrow and say, but they'll be more entertained if I juggle knives. And the reason they're more entertained is because juggling knives is more entertaining than juggling blunt instruments because people have this voyeuristic urge to see if knives knife's gonna fall and cut you. And so I think that Henry uh, Zilberstein appropriately doesn't countenance that question. And that tells you that he starts having, uh, that he starts having uh, boundaries here even though he doesn't uh, I think I like the, the formulation here that it's, you can't use the purpose as the excuse for the action you have to do the action for the sake of the purpose. Okay, there's right, other examples. Are you allowed to, right here's where he's boarding employment. Are you allowed to uh, have an operation to remove a bullet so that you can demonstrate who shot you so that you can then um, claim civil damages from the person? And the answer is yes. Even if the surgery has an element of danger, that's just like climbing a tree. It's not just employment. And this is clearly not the standard of right, socially essential employment. It's just, you want the money. Okay, you're allowed to engage in that calculation. Um, then he has a case which is much, much higher level, but begins to get to an issue that matters to us, is, if I'm allowed to endanger myself, am I allowed to engage in activities that endanger others for cause? And his example is, can I enroll people in my medical study for the sake of, uh, for the sake of saving other people's lives? Right? So is a person right, is a person allowed to enroll in a medical study for money, and am I allowed to administer whatever the experimental medication is uh, for, my, for money? Um, okay, right? And maybe it's only medical, maybe it's also for shampoos. Who knows? And the answer is, of course, you're again. You can do it for money. Um, okay, right? Quote from Moshe that we'll see that we'll see in a moment, um, and, um, and he says the Egress Moshe says. So it seems in our case also, he says, look, if the person wants the money, and for the sake of the money, they're willing to do whatever, right, have whatever it is done to them physically, then if we allow them to do it, right, we allow them to risk themselves for the sake of making a living, so then if if they're allowed to risk themselves, then you're allowed to pay them, and you're allowed to administer the shot, even though that shot is endangering them, that's a pretty radical claim. Right, that um, if you pay the other party, so not only can they endanger themselves, but you can endanger them. So Arizalba seems really, right, really very, very radical right? Because one other case, right, and this is a case that starts moving to us. He says, what happens? This is a case during the uh, during the first Gulf War, and uh, actually, I don't think I don't know if this is during the first Gulf War. It might be during one of the Hezbollah rocket uh, rocket barrages, right? And let's say somebody works in Shdeirut, and there are occasional rocket barrages, and the boss says well, if you don't come in, then you're fired. And the worker says, but I think that going to the road is dangerous. Um, right? So he says, well, people are allowed to endanger themselves for the sake of money. But he says, huh, that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove anything. We would tell you, you can engage, and he puts in this line again, you can engage in risk ara up to a certain percentage for the sake of money. But if the worker doesn't want to risk risk anything, so maybe the the employer can't force him to. But he says but in the end halacha is it just follows general practice. It's a contract. And so whatever the implicit terms of the contract are, that's what we go by. We should do a general practices, right? So that raises Deborah's question is: But what happens if, right? We don't have general practice. People are coming to us and saying, "What should our practice be?" Um, right. So this is kind sort of abdicating, uh, as opposed to providing moral guidance as to what kinds of uh, right, what 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 kinds of risks employers should bear, should bear the costs of, and what kinds of risks employees should should bear the costs of. So I have problems with. Um, I think Rav Zilberstein you know, is rooted. I have to say that you know I presume that this is. A very um, influential position currently in the um, in the Haredi community um, but i I find it uh, on the one hand way too broad um, and it lays way way too much room for interpretation and I think uh, you know people say that you know, do we allow subjective calculations of it so probably to some extent this depends on having a you know a somewhat centralized authoritarian system where you assume that everybody will ask Shilohs about everything. And if you assume that everybody will ask about everything, so then having fuzzy standards isn't such a big deal. Uh, but I don't think it's true of the culture, right? If you could have an imaginary culture in which everybody asks Shilohs about everything, but in the real world, people don't. And so I think this is a, um, it's a very libertarian position in a certain sense, right? It, um, if you just don't, if people don't ask Shilohs, uh, but it's very risky, but I think you have to be aware that this, uh, this exists. And the other problem is that it, it seems as like a sort of, you know, it, it abdicates really the moral goal of Torah. It doesn't tell us what to do um, in cases like uh, day schools, which is really, uh, really an issue. Uh, There's is a much more radical position that people should be aware of, which I think um, has value in a certain sense and should be utterly rejected in a different sense. Um, since Eliezer quotes a position of the Binyan Sion, uh, the 18th century of the Adlinger, the Ark of Linaire, he says, look, there has to be a difference between putting yourself directly in danger and assuming some kind of risk of a future event that will put you in danger, uh, right? There has to, we have to make that some kind of distinction in that regard. And he says, you know what? And this is where I think it's just uns- insupportable. He says, well, putting yourself in immediate danger, you can't do it all in any danger, immediately becomes, right? Immediately becomes, um, you know, Picoffinathish overrides everything, but if there's no immediate danger, we're just taking a statistical risk of something eventually developing. that he says the standard is rote. You, know, you can't you can't put yourself at a greater than 49 percent risk of uh, risk of death. That seems to me an utterly uh, unsustainable uh, unsustainable position, um, and I yeah, I just can't I can't really deal with it at all. Uh, but he points at a really important issue, which is that there has to be a difference between immediate risk and Really, really long-term calculated risk, and one of them, you know, immediate risk. You can say in absolute, you know, emergency terms, and other and other kinds of risks have to be balanced in more sophisticated ways. Uh, but I think that you know that the notion that only two switches, absolute and forty-nine percent, uh, seems to me utterly implausible. Um, okay, so th- so far we're talking about the risks you can assume uh, now, and I'll try and finish within ten minutes. Um, we'll talk about, sorry if I'm going a little over time, but I think it's really important for this year not to be left in the middle. Uh, let's talk about the extent to which your obligation, we already saw in Zilberstein that you can give, if somebody enrolls in a medical study, you can give them the shot. Um, but what sort of information do they have to have? What sort of consent do you need? Uh, how does the standards for your own risk relate to the standards of risking others? That's what we should talk about now. Um, so toast for the Vakama, and um, in and a couple other places says that the principle in halacha is the The standard for for avoiding damaging others is higher than the standard for being damaged. You have to have more care for others than for yourself. But the Netziv says no. Um, it, right, he quotes. Right, depend, he thinks it depends on the uh, on, on the text of the Gemara in a particular case. It says and right, the standard is the same for both. The Resilver State has this uh, marvelous, uh, marvelous shaila. If you have two chairs in your house, you invite a guest over. Which of you gets the rickety chair? He says, well, first of all, there's a mitzvah of So therefore, right? And in addition to that, he says, you know what? You give your, you give your, um, your, your guests the, the less rickety chair. The, because equal quotes toast food, right? So the service so set out a standard, which I appeals to me very much, of the of toast food as against the Shilta, that you have to be more careful about others than yourself. On the other end of Moshe, in a fascinating Shiva, does not seem to take that um, position. Rav Moshe says, I was asked a question about whether, uh, whether people are allowed to um, engage in, uh, in ball playing even though in bowl playing there's a one in several thousand risk that you're going to, that you're going, that you're going to die. Um, I don't think i is talking about football. I think he's actually talking about baseball and it'd be interesting to know if this trouble was written sometime after you know, after, you know, close to the one fatality that has happened in, uh, in major, in major league baseball. Uh, right. So are you allowed to play ball to make a living, uh, even though, right, even though there's a great risk to you. Um, and, um, Right, so the says right, he gives you he quantifies it. One in several thousand get endangered. That's why I think it's early organized uh, organized baseball. Um, and I responded that, that you know what I think uh, I think it's permissible. And he quotes the Gemara of Messiah about taking risks for money. And now he says and it follows that because you can take risks for employment, ask. Even if there's a risk, you'll endanger others in the same statistically dif- distant uh, level. Muter is permissible to do this for money. What difference does it matter whether you're risking someone else or risking yourself? That even to kill yourself is a prohibition against murder. Uh, that we permit you to engage to accept this distant risk for the sake of money. So the same, you can put others in the same risk. And he says, if that were in the case, then we would never allow the employer to employ you. Because the employer is putting you at risk. So if we allow you to put yourself at risk, then it has to be that we allow others to put you at risk. But now he says, That certainly is certainly is the case. So no. This is only true when the other person is is entering into this willingly. Because certainly, you have no right to introduce people into even a, a risk as dangerous as this if they did not know and had no um, and, and no no willingness to engage even in this kind of distant danger. So this is a very powerful thing. Um, but what it requires analysis of um, is what is considered to be Ritsona. What does it mean to enter a circumstance willingly? Um, because workers are often at um, at great economic disadvantage uh, relative to employers. And so it's not, right, and particularly if the circumstance of employment change, let's say Let's take Ravit uh, Zilberstein's circumstance, right? So you took a safe job in the south of Israel selling cosmetics, and now all of a sudden there are missiles falling on you. So you didn't voluntarily enter into this. So we will tell you, okay, you know, so you're not, right, the contract, that will contract, but you built your life around the expectation that you would have a job, right? Both you and the employer, um, right, assumed that you would have the job as long as you wanted, let's say, right? Um, let's say, or right? Maybe you, you build very concrete plans, right? So that it also depends on the society, on the profession as to what extent people expect tenures. What happens if, if there's no way to get safe employment in the profession anymore because somebody has found a missile that homes in on cosmetic, whatever it may be. Um, so that, I think, right, is a very profound ethical question. Under what circumstances do we see people as entering into relationships voluntarily? And I think there again, we need a very carefully calibrated sliding scale. I think Rosilberstein is the blunt instrument, just do what everyone does. But what everyone does, you know, if you have a society where everyone is an independent agent, right? Capital isn't aggregated and labor isn't ag- aggregated. And so really people are making individual choices on the basis of value judgments, as opposed to engaging in, you know, as opposed to wielding their economic power to coerce others, or there's a situation where there's a structural imbalance um, right. So then you could say that, but in circumstances where it's not that, where that's not the case, let's say where the employers or corporations, perhaps, and right, when decisions are being made, in a, you know, in a in, a, in, a, in a without without direct concern for immediate concern for the moral right for the for the, for morality in the same way, you know, certainly in certain kinds of corporations, if you accept a certain notion of corporations as having responsibility only to the shareholders, um, right. So there, right, what happens if you have uh, the kind of you know situation where you get employed? even if you have that rule contract, um, but you couldn't possibly get another job in your field until the next year, which is the situation of most teachers, particularly into studies teachers for um, whom there aren't um, anywhere near as many opportunities during the year. So that seems to me a radically different case. Uh, it should really depend on what kind of dangers there are, whether the dangers are unique to you or the dangers are ones that everyone in society is adopting, you just want to be safer, um, Right, what if? What if? Right. I think that the case of a um, of COVID-19 is particularly interesting because the risks that uh, the risk that people assume. Let's say I go into work, so I'm not only risking myself; I'm risking all the people who come in contact with me. That's not the same thing as going into a site which might which might get uh, which might get hit by missiles, um, right? Where the risk is only to me. It's all those sorts of right. And we can give much more power to people not wanting to risk others. Right. I think there again, I have more sympathy for the, um, for the position of Tostos than for the Shiltos, that the standard for endangering others should be much higher than the standard for endangering um, yourself. I should tell you just to be uh, right, to be fully transparent that the, um, yeah, the frame at the end here will say that Taurus there says you prefer your own life to others, uh, but that I think is when you're choosing as to whom to save, not about what your responsibilities are in terms of danger. I don't think that's the same issue at all. Okay, to sum up, um, I think there's a lot of stuff as you've seen, you know, that enables Halakha to think about a nuanced risk formulation. All sorts of categories need to come in. Uh what's employment, what's what's right, what's considered a worthwhile purpose, what's socially necessary, uh, what level of risk, immediacy immediacy of risk, uh concept, right con- concepts of uh of willingness, that I think is what a really sophisticated conversation um has to be like, right, right. Um And I think that if we're in a crisis, not an emergency, um, and I think again, I think we all understand that it's obvious you close school if there's a danger for a week, and you say if you koch nefesh, trumps everything. It's much less obvious, even if the risk is identical, that you close school for the year, because the cost of closing school for a year socially might very well be um, not just you know scaling; it doesn't just scale out. But at some point, the costs start. Um, building on each other, start becoming cumulative uh, in ways that the risk doesn't. All the risk itself is right, people, people the risk itself is also cumulative, but it might be that at a certain point the risk is just arithmetically cumulative and the costs become much more than arithmetically cumulative, um, that there are long term costs that themselves arise because of all those sorts of issues. But I think what I want to argue is that this is the kind of a conversation we need to have. What I'm hoping is that this kind of conversation is not abused by people, which I think is the risk of Robert Zilberstein's position um, to make subjective decisions that endanger others, um, but rather as a way that we can enable people to say, you know what, uh, you know, that, that is a worthwhile purpose, that is, it's not, chayim, that is it's not, adam, and that is not, uh, right? And so we allow you, let's say, to come in and teach at school, but it doesn't mean that you can go play contact sports indoors. It doesn't mean that you can violate social distancing even to the extent of having a barbecue with two other families um, unless we decide that that kind of socializing is utterly critical and then again we'll have to calibrate it very very carefully okay that's my presentation and now I will uh, stop the share and I will take questions for as long as people want to ask questions Rabbi Chessis are you still on do you want to handle it or just let people talk whenever they Okay, are there questions? Uh, make sure you seem to be my default screen. <laughs> I don't know why. Do you have a question? You got to go first because you're my default screen. Uh, no, I, I guess I was just going to comment early on that you know Rabbi Akiva his you know teaching of Torah that obviously that you know that wouldn't apply to say secular schools or to college, right? For the most part you know, but uh, obviously there's a lot of, you know, as you developed throughout the rest of this year, there's a lot of other considerations that, you know, we take, um, you know, that we allow for, um, you know, just for kind of normal, normal living and and there's always risks that are involved. Yeah, I think that's right. What college is, you know, it might be that that secular education doesn't require in-person to the same extent, but on the other hand, at some point, we're gonna need welders. I don't think you can, you know, I don't think you can learn, you can learn welding from, uh, from a YouTube video, although I imagine that my son will try sometime soon. Um, but he can learn many other things from, uh, right? But I, you know, some things, some things probably really require in personal experience, personal experience, still plumbing, uh, right? Like, you know, right? So I think that we're gonna have to figure out as a society at some point, you know, to what extent do we allow vocational schools to reopen in person that might be more important than university? Uh, Right, which has none of that. I think those are, you know, to what extent do we view the economic welfare of our community? All right, if it, what happens it turned out that day schools are, you know, the Torah education is fine, but, but if day schools are virtual and non day schools, right, non day schools are in person, so that turns out to generate a, a serious decline in high level college acceptances. Right, so right, do we see that as a, you know, did we see high level college acceptances as a value that entails certain kinds of risk? I think that's a great, you know, I think those are the kind of questions we need to have. Um, right, you know, Deborah's also asking a question which I'm trying to learn in my son in law now, which is a really big issue, which is how we evaluate a certain percentage of risk to life as opposed to a certain percentage of um, shortening of life expectancy many years from now. Right, that's also, I think, an issue that is not necessarily obviously the same thing halafically. Uh, that's not this year, though, because you know, my son-in-law and I just started learning that, and uh, I don't, I'm not ready to give a share on it. Yet. But thank you. I think mean, that's exactly right. All right. Uh, uh, okay, right. Sam, I'm not going to take a position as to uh, what I, whether, you know, I think that, you know, I, I read SBM virtually this summer. I think that academically it was excellent, and, you know, community building-wise, in terms of Shemesh, it wasn't the same. Yeah, could it be the same? I just did not do it yet. Could be. I don't know the answer to that yet. Um, you know, I, I never taught high school. Um, I, I you know, whether we distinguish between the known knowns, the known unknowns, and the unknown unknowns, known right? Which is Deborah's question. Uh, I don't know. I, you know. I think that's a very. I do think we have to be honest. You know, I wrote this that there's almost nothing we do opening wise, and certainly not opening schools, which we can. That's why I think it's really important, which we can say is without risk because we can't we don't know all the parameters, we can't evaluate the risk well enough to say there's no risk. Right? That's Deborah's answer. That's why I think that the rhetoric of everything is dangerous when we believe there are things we have to do because it makes it impossible for us to explain to people why they can't do the things they want to do, even though we're doing this. I think that's entirely correct. So I think we need a language now which says look, you know, we're making extraordinarily careful decisions which are based on giving enormous value to life. But we acknowledge that giving enormous value to life is not the same as saying that at the first hint that there is any risk to anyone, we will all move into our medically sealed bubbles and, and not leave them again until, you know, until the robots come back and tell us that there are no pathogens whatsoever um, in the atmosphere. Um, okay. Okay. Um,